Scott Bay, your host for an hour of news and information relating to mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and educating the general public about mental health issues. Welcome to another March 2015 edition of Psychiatry Today. And uh, it is now back to daylight savings time for most of the country. There's a few isolated little pockets who choose not to make these adjustments, but uh, the rest of us turned the clocks ahead one recent Saturday night, and now we're getting the benefit of longer days and greater periods of sunlight, which is of particular interest on this program, seeing as how sunlight in and of itself is an antidepressant. And yes, there are light boxes to treat seasonal affective disorder, uh, and even some people with milder versions of that, like the winter blues, use them. And yes, they mimic the beneficial effects of sunlight by using full-spectrum bright light without the harmful UV rays. However, even with the risk of too much causing wrinkles and skin cancer, you still cannot beat the sun for the antidepressant effect. So, it is a welcome change that we're back to daylight savings time. And those of you who have hung on all fall and winter, I know must be feeling better. And don't be concerned that it's very dark when you get up in the morning. That's going to be that way for a little while. But sooner than later, that won't be a problem either. Well, tonight, we're going to start with... Uh, a much more dark topic than what we just talked about, and you know, no pun intended, but a very serious topic, I should have said. <clears throat> Scientists have found a troubling link between air pollution and suicide, that there is this link, or possible link, is according to new research that finds there are spikes that take place in the amounts of completed suicides in the days following peak pollution levels. And by the way, what do I mean by, or what does the author of the article mean by a completed suicide? Well, uh, when someone attempts suicide but they survive, obviously that's not a completed suicide. But if someone tragically does uh, take their own life, that is considered a completed suicide. Now, where did this research take place in terms of finding an association between air pollution and suicide? Did it take place in notoriously polluted areas like L.A. with its 
Notorious smog? No. <clears throat> Did it take place in Manhattan, New York, where there's a lot of cars and traffic and congestion? No. Did it take place in one of the industrial rust belt areas uh, where there's a lot of air pollution from industry? No. It took place in a surprising part of the country, a part that's considered scenic and that you wouldn't Normally, consider it too polluted in Utah. And it turns out that Utah also happens to be part of the United States' western so-called suicide belt. Suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in the United States, but in Utah, it is the eighth leading cause. Now, though the notion... Suicide and air quality could be linked may not seem intuitive. Similar studies in South Korea, Taiwan, and Canada have also linked the two. Altogether, the findings suggest that suicide is a preventable outcome, <clears throat> and air pollution in particular could be a modifiable risk factor that could lead to prevention. Now, of course, suicide is very complicated. Unsurprisingly, mental illness plays a huge role. At least 90% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosable mental disorder, according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. But a mental disorder alone does not necessarily make a person suicidal nor do all people who envision committing suicide actually do so. Research suggests that short-term factors in a person's life seem to be important, as suicide is often brought on by an immediate personal or mental health crisis in a vulnerable person. Some of these short-term factors may be external. It has long been recognized the deaths by suicide peak in the springtime months, which could be a result of social factors. However, a growing body of evidence suggests that physical inflammation might also be to blame. Inflammation occurs when the immune system goes into overdrive, triggering the release of a variety of compounds that act on all of the body's systems. The inflammatory compound quinolinic acid has been directly linked to suicidal thoughts, and research has further connected suicide rates with the level of inflammation-promoting particles in the air. For example, in 2013, a study published in the journal British Medical Journal Open found that suicides in Denmark went up with tree pollen levels. Those are substances that increase inflammation. Air pollution could cause inflammation as well. A 2010 study in the American Journal of Psychiatry linked suicide with increases in particulate matter in the air in Korea. 2011 research in the Journal of Affective Disorders 
made the same link in Taiwan. Another 2010 study, this one in Vancouver, found that wintertime emergency room visits for suicide attempts increased in the days following high air pollution levels. In Salt Lake County, where this research was done, winters are marked by air patterns known as inversions, which often trap air pollution close to the ground. Researchers therefore wondered if pollution might be linked with suicides in Utah. Working with the Utah Department of Health's Office of the Medical Examiner, the researchers gathered data on all suicides in Salt Lake County between 2000 and 2010, a total of 1,546. They chose to focus only on completed suicides, not suicide attempts, because the demographics and characteristics of people who complete suicide and people who attempt suicide are different. That might seem odd to you, but just by sheer statistic gathering and analyzing, you can document that definitely is the case. For example, men are more likely than women to complete suicide, and people who actually die by suicide use more lethal means, such as guns, compared to people who survive an attempt. The researchers compared the timing of these suicides with air pollution levels, including fine and coarse particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide and sulfur dioxide from Environmental Protection Agency monitors in the county. They found that suicide risk went up two to three days after levels of fine particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide rose. The finer the particulates, the better they are at permeating thoracic airways, <clears throat> and therefore the greater the likelihood of triggering inflammation in the body, etc. Surprisingly, the link between the levels of these pollutants and suicide was strongest not in the winter, but in the spring and fall. This, the article doesn't mention this, but if you think about it, those are also the allergy seasons, too. So in my mind, it raises the question, you know, we have an association already between high pollen levels and increased risk of suicide. Is it possible that if pollutants peak at the same time, it could be a double whammy of inflammation in the body, putting people at risk for suicide? <clears throat> Air pollution seems to interact with other spring and fall risk factors for suicide. Now, the link was strongest in men and among those in the 25 to 64-year-old age group, as well as those who died by violent means, such as firearms. Uh, so that was amongst uh, one of the stronger links found between air pollution and suicide. Now, this research was published February the 10th in the American Journal of Epidemiology. 
It's important to mention this is only one study in an area where there is only a small body of research. The findings should be interpreted cautiously. And it can't establish that the air pollution caused the increase in suicides. It only shows a correlation between the two. The findings bolster the small body of research linking suicide and pollutions, but questions remain. Researchers controlled for the level of sunlight during the study period, which might affect suicide risk, but they didn't control for precipitation. Rain or snow alone could influence suicidal behavior and might wash the pollution from the skies. Nevertheless, an intriguing finding. All right, we'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and we are talking about the scary thing that anger does to your heart is our next subject on tonight's show. This is admittedly not the first time I've talked about the links between anger and heart disease on the show, Uh, but it's... As far as I'm concerned, always important to take a look at this issue and remind people they need to do something about their out-of-control anger or there are going to be consequences. It's a universal truth. Anger sure doesn't feel good. And according to new research, an angry outburst could also come with a pretty serious health effect. The study published in the European Heart Journal, Acute Cardiovascular Care, 
shows that heart attack risk is eight and a half times higher in the two hours after a bout of extreme anger compared with general common patterns of everyday angry feelings. Researchers tracked patients admitted to Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, Australia for primary angioplasty, a procedure to open blocked blood vessels after a heart attack, between 2006 and 2012. Of the 687 patients originally suspected to have experienced a heart attack, 313 were confirmed and included in the study analysis. Through a questionnaire answered by the participants, anger was assessed on an individual basis on a seven-point scale. One on the scale was considered calm, whereas seven on the scale was considered enraged, out of control, for example, throwing objects, hurting yourself or others. Using personal judgment, patients themselves indicated where they felt they fell on this scale. Researchers considered level five or above an episode of acute anger, meaning very angry, body tense, maybe fists clenched, ready to burst. Of the 313 cases of heart attack assessed in the hospital, seven followed a bout of acute anger that occurred within two hours of the heart attack. An additional person had reached level five anger within four hours of the cardiac episode. Level four anger was noted in two participants within two hours and three participants within four hours. Taking each participant's usual anger frequency into account, the researchers determined that the odds of heart attack symptoms within two hours of a level five or greater anger episode was roughly eight times higher than the risk associated with those normal garden variety anger levels. This is a significant finding that may lead us to better understand predictors of heart attack. This indicates that the episodes of anger were not just coincidental but associated with triggering the heart attack. This increased risk lasts for two hours after anger and there was no association with lower levels of anger and the onset of a heart attack. Well, why is it that anger is so dangerous? These findings add to previous research showing anger's negative impact on overall health and well-being. A March 2014 study from the Harvard School of Public Health showed anger increases heart attack and stroke risk. According to the researchers, five bouts of anger a day would end in an extra 158 annual heart attacks per 10,000 people at low risk of heart issues and 657 extra episodes per 10,000 people at high risk. So what is anger's role in increased risk of these events? <clears throat> anger results in changes to heart rate and blood pressure, 
as well as additional inflammatory markers and activation of the clotting system. The, that is, the blood clotting system makes your um, blood thicker, as it were. Uh, all of these things, the blood pressure, the heart rate, inflammation, uh, the blood being thicker, all of these things are associated with the onset of a heart attack. Most heart attacks are secondary to a blood clot in the coronary artery. That's the artery that supplies the heart muscle itself. And this, the heart attack will usually occur after the rupture of a plaque in one of these arteries. <clears throat> so these physiological changes associated with anger, again, increased heart rate and blood pressure, increased inflammation and activation of the blood clotting system. <clears throat> All these things contribute to this plaque in the artery becoming unstable and rupturing. And then you have blood clots blocking off the artery. For doctors and patients alike, the takeaway is recognizing that emotional distress leaves you vulnerable to heart-related incidents. While the absolute risk of a heart attack for one given episode of anger is still quite low, <clears throat> it is definitely important to take into account the risk is high and those with existing cardiac risk factors should work with their health care provider to reduce those and also take strategies to avoid anger situations as well. Now, you know by now the modifiable risk factors such as uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and so on. But anger should also be thought of as a modifiable risk factor that leaves one vulnerable, not just to heart attack and stroke, but to other conditions as well. For instance, a 2013 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, showed that anger and irritability were associated with more severe depression issues and higher substance abuse incidents, anxiety disorders, and overall lower life satisfaction. Well, this is all well and good, and it's nice that the article highlights what risks are entailed when one is so angry, uh, on a, especially on a regular basis. It's increasing the risk of heart attack. So what do you do about this? How do you get your anger under control? I mean, if you're going to articulate the problem, you ought to also be able to suggest uh, some solutions, right? Or at least point people in the right direction. So I was definitely looking for that. From this article. Let's see what they had to say. The trick is to prevent anger, anxiety, and stress whenever possible. If you're constantly on edge, stress reduction therapy and avoiding situations where confrontation is likely may be your best bet. Some other strategies are listing things that can trigger your anger learning to control your thinking, and avoiding the exaggeration of an event. 
before, during, and after something stressful, take time out. Use distraction. Use relaxation. Learn assertiveness skills and acknowledge the thing that is making you angry. Letting your frustrations out constructively without acting out <clears throat> may seem easier said than done. But if you learn the tools, your body will thank you. Now, I think that advice was sound, but disappointingly vague and not specific. Stress reduction therapy. Well, that would be very helpful, but finding a therapist who is qualified to do that in a uh, specific and specialized way is not the easiest thing in the world. <clears throat> Avoiding situations where confrontation is likely. If you can do that, that's great. But what happens if you are stuck in a job and either your boss, who you directly report to, or uh, some of the people that you work with on a daily basis are always provoking confrontation. It's kind of difficult to actively avoid it in that case. How about learning to control your thinking and avoiding the exaggeration of an event? Of course. Uh, this is extremely helpful if someone can learn how to do this. And again, this is you know a cognitive behavioral technique. So ideally, this could be taught and learned from a cognitive behavioral therapist. But we already just talked about that finding qualified specialty therapists to work on this issue is definitely a challenge at times. Uh, an even bigger challenge to try to get any reimbursement from your health insurance company, even if you could find a qualified practitioner. And then it says use distraction, relaxation, assertiveness skills, uh, all things that there are courses and ser uh, seminars about all the time, and acknowledge the thing that is making you angry. An interesting comment there. Acknowledge the thing. This is what's making me angry. It's my boss belittling me and criticizing me even though I work very hard. It's my co-worker being manipulative and backstabbing and taking credit for my work. Let your frustrations out constructively without acting out. may seem easier said than done, but if you learn the tools, your body will thank you. Okay, yes, so... We definitely get that, right? But again, the interesting part here, acknowledge what is making you angry. And, uh, of course, the part of not acting out, easier said than done. But I do think there is a lot of value in uh, being able to just contemplate what it is. It's making you angry, uh, acknowledge it, and then decide, well, Realistically, what about this situation? Can I change and then do it? And if there are certain situations uh, where you can't affect any change uh, in order to lessen your anger, uh, then you can decide not to react to it as much. Um, easier said than done. Totally agree.
Well, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Tracy Pearson at Prissy Tomboy. Are you looking for a way to inspire your pre-teen to teen girl to get outside and play? Listen to the Prissy Tomboy radio show every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on America's Web Radio. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Thank you again for tuning in for an informative hour related to mental health issues. Our next topic tonight is how to tell the difference between having some sort of personality or behavior quirk and having obsessive-compulsive disorder. There are plenty of things that bother us for really no logical reason at all. For instance, the end of a toilet paper roll has to be flipped over the top instead of hanging it from the back. Or the one next to your inbox, the numeral one, next to the inbox must be eliminated at all costs even if it means marking unread emails as read. Whether you call these neuroses or quirks or little annoyances, there is a reason why we develop them, experts say. We inadvertently condition ourselves to certain patterns that can include habits, routines, behaviors, and yes, quirks. But these are not the same thing as mental disorders. They are likely developed by our own experiences and environment and can be controlled. Let's take the example of people who must keep a color-coded closet, for instance. If you are guilty of this, try to remember how this habit started. Most likely, you had a messy closet. This was your trigger. To fix the problem, you organized and decided to color code. After your closet was clean, you felt proud of yourself. 
and you liked that feeling. Now, every time you fix your closet in this way, you reinforce this brain pattern. And there you have yourself a quirk. But what's the difference between a simple quirk like this and obsessive-compulsive disorder, a diagnosable mental condition marked by repetitive and distressing thoughts that manifest in compulsive rituals? After all, your impulse to color code occurs over and over again, which may seem obsessive. And your behavior is completed with the intention of making the obsession go away, which may seem compulsive. But according to the International OCD Foundation, unless this behavior is triggered by a fear or anxiety and completed with a series of compulsions that relieves you of these feelings, it's not a sign of the disorder. Here's a major difference between our personal obsessions and OCD. With the former, we complete these habits voluntarily, even if we don't really remember why we started doing them in the first place. Meanwhile, having obsessive-compulsive disorder is not like having a quirk. It torments people's mind constantly. It can be paralyzing, too. In the mind of someone with diagnosed OCD, if the compulsion is not completed, the stakes are incredibly high. They may be preoccupied with the fear of getting a fatal disease, for instance, or their not completing the ritual may result in harm to a family member. OCD sufferers realize that these thoughts are irrational, but their fear and anxiety is the driving force when doing the compulsions. They do their rituals because they don't want to take a chance of the possibility that their thoughts and fears may come true. In addition to obsessive-compulsive disorder, ritualistic behaviors are also common in people with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, or OCPD. Now, people with this condition are affected by unhealthy perfectionism, but without the anxieties that come with OCD. Someone with OCPD is obsessed with getting things done right, clean, and exact, but they can't remember why they started the task in the first place. This perfectionism is based on rigidity, not fear. But just like OCD, it can, com it can impair their day-to-day -day activities and functioning. So you might be full of quirks, but there is no reason to use a flippant phrase like, I'm so OCD if you don't have the actual diagnosable condition. If you were able to move on from a behavior without obsessing about it and don't experience anxiety over it, it's most likely just a quirk. 
If your friends and your spouse become annoyed by your quirks, you may decide to change. If you fall into this category, you may choose to seek a therapist's help to change. Most people may want to change their quirky habits when they feel ashamed about them, or feel pressure to change because of friends, loved ones, or other pressures in the social or work environment. Behavior modification techniques such as awareness, delaying, changing, shaping, and reinforcement. Can help a person find alternative behaviors, or end the habits entirely. Mindfulness training is also something that can be used to change undesired habits. When the habits are indicative of OCD, though, treatments often involve medication and/or cognitive behavioral therapy. Specifically, a method called exposure and response prevention. <clears throat> Now, exposure and response prevention is pretty much what it sounds like.、Uh, in a therapeutic situation, the patient is exposed to the stimulus that arouses their anxiety, their obsessive worrying. And their compulsive behavior to stop the anxiety. Response prevention is just that: they see the stimulus which triggers the anxiety. They are prevented or、uh, told to prevent themselves from performing the anxiety-reducing ritual. The purpose of this is not to torture the person with OCD, but The technique results in the person confronting and dealing with their anxiety about whatever it was that stimulated it, without resorting to the bizarre sort of comfort that comes with performing the ritual. <clears throat> and the goal is, over time, with enough cycles of exposure and response prevention, the person will. Get used to the stimulus and not be made anxious by it. And it can be a very,、uh, extremely, in fact, effective technique, but it takes the right amount of work and practice. Now, in some cases, when OCD is extremely and severely disabling, hospitalization may even become necessary. And Last resort of all,、uh, uh, there is neurosurgery or psychosurgery to try to alleviate only the most extreme, severe cases of OCD that have not responded to adequate and thorough and appropriate trials of medication and are so disabling and crippling that they cause severe impairment. In multiple domains of the patient's life, socially, occupationally, and with family. But I assure you, that's a very, very drastic measure. Very rare.、Uh, the specific procedure would be a singulotomy, and um, <clears throat> uh, it usually would 
interrupt, as it were, the reverberating circuit in the brain that results in the obsessive thoughts and the attempts to use the compulsive rituals to get them to stop. <clears throat> I once had a patient who came to see me about their OCD and the neurosurgeon had already given them a tentative date for the surgery. And in my opinion, they hadn't had an aggressive enough uh, or a lengthy enough trial of medication to justify letting them go under the neurosurgeon's knife. So I said, no, uh, let's postpone that. Let's do all we can with medication first. And sure enough, she did not need the surgery. And then... Although it's bizarre, there is a documented case somewhere in the medical literature of a person with extremely debilitating OCD who became depressed from it and became suicidal and attempted to commit suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot wound or perhaps it was a handgun, I'm not sure. I want to say it might have been a small shotgun. And they put the barrel of the gun in their mouth, and when they discharged the firearm, it was a small caliber weapon, the bullet did a perfect cingulotomy uh, and then shot out through the top of the skull. Uh, the person was able to survive their wounds and recover, and when they did, Voila, their OCD was cured. And that's uh, one in multiple gazillions, of course, and not a recommended way to try to rid oneself of OCD. Uh, but just to make the point that with the right lesion in the brain in the right place, uh, it can be curative of OCD even in the worst cases. Unfortunately, the stigma about mental illness is still there, and the fear of being judged or looked upon as if one is crazy or weird doesn't allow for individuals to be more open about their mental and emotional challenges. This is why, for the most part, sufferers of OCD do so in silence and rarely share the things they worry and obsess about in the rituals that they do. Society would do well to be more forgiving and admit that there is no normal, and this would allow OCD sufferers not to have to uh, hide uh, their problem and live in fear of harsh judging. All right, another commercial break, and we'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, with all the latest mental health-related news next up on tonight's show. The subject is people with ADHD and some sobering but important information about their long-term prognosis. Now, if you or someone close to you, no matter what their age, suffers with ADHD, you need to listen up or you need to get them to listen up to this next segment. And I doubt Skeptics about ADHD would be listening to the show anyway, but certainly if there are still, um, well, not if, we know there are still very narrow-minded, stubborn people who think they know more than decades and decades of medical research and expertise documenting that Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, is a very real diagnosable mental illness, which causes a great deal of disability, difficulty functioning, and a great deal of negative consequences for the lives of people who suffer from it. Uh, There are just too many, still in this day and age, of these people who say they don't believe there is such a thing, as if it were subject to belief or not. The very notion is preposterous. And instead, they blame the core symptoms of lack of attention and impulsivity on questionable parenting um, or other factors. 
But regardless of the naysayers, who I have to say I think are a fortunately dwindling, dying out breed, this research that we're going to talk about now is even more proof positive that ADHD is a very real disorder with very real and serious potential health consequences. <clears throat> People with ADHD are twice as likely to die prematurely, often due to accidents. Two times as likely. These patients have a lower life expectancy, and according to new research published in the journal The Lancet, accidents are the most common cause of death in people with ADHD, and the risk of dying is much higher for women than men with ADHD, counter to what you might think. And also, the risk is higher with those who are diagnosed in adulthood. <clears throat> the study claims that it's the first one to shed light on the role of ADHD in premature death. Now, I want to mention something about First, being diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood, there is the term that is often used, but in my opinion, little understood, adult ADHD. That does not mean that someone can suddenly become an ADHD sufferer in adulthood. I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing whatsoever. By definition... ADHD starts as early as age 7, or you never had it in the first place. If you did not show symptoms of it until adulthood, then there is something other than ADHD that is responsible for distractedness and being unfocused, and so on. Period. End of story. No debate or discussion. Sorry, but... That's the way it is. This is one of the worst myths about ADHD that there are. Um, so what is adult ADHD then if, if it's not, if, if what I'm saying uh, is not adult ADHD? Well, it's ADHD that was always there if you go back and carefully examine someone's childhood history, but for one reason or another was not discovered until adulthood. The common profile of the ADHD patient who is not diagnosed until adulthood and therefore called adult ADHD is someone who as a child had the inattentiveness but not the hyperactivity. Therefore they didn't cause a behavior or management problem for the teachers in their classrooms and therefore, they were not singled out for a specific and detailed diagnostic assessment to see if they had ADHD. And typically, as a child, the patient not diagnosed until adulthood was rather bright, so that they quickly evolved compensatory mechanisms to be able to if not uh, at least get by in school, often excel in school and overcome their attention deficits, literally, 
until such time as they're older and life becomes much more complex and those compensatory mechanisms that help the child get through school become overwhelmed and they're not enough to help the person deal with the complexities of life a busy and stressful job a demanding boss a wife children mortgage car payments etc so that's the scenario for not being diagnosed until adulthood when all those complexities enter into the picture and finally it becomes very difficult to focus and concentrate and to overcome all those life-related distractions. Now, the large nationwide cohort study followed nearly 2 million individuals in Denmark. Uh, the Danish have great national registries of all their citizens that make epidemiological research very easy. Other Scandinavian countries as well. The survey was more than 32,000 people with ADHD followed from their first birthday up to 2013. Uh, the longest patient was followed, I mean the longest term a patient was followed was 32 years. The causes of premature death were assessed to compare individuals with and without ADHD. In the follow-up period, 107 people with ADHD died. And people diagnosed with ADHD were about twice as likely to die prematurely as people without the disorder, even after adjusting for known factors that affect the risk of early death, including age, sex, family history of psychiatric disorders, maternal and paternal age, and parental education. This increased risk of premature death in people with ADHD was mainly driven by deaths from unnatural causes, more than half of which were caused by accidents. 42 deaths among 79 people for whom the cause of death was known. The risk of dying prematurely increased with age at diagnosis. For example, individuals diagnosed at age 18 years or older were more than four times as likely to die early compared with those without ADHD at the same age. Whereas children diagnosed before the age of six years were at around double the risk of death compared with their healthy counterparts. The findings also reveal that girls and women with ADHD have a higher relative risk of premature death compared with boys and men with ADHD. Previous research has shown that individuals with ADHD are more likely to have a range of coexisting disorders including oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, and substance use disorders. People with ADHD who also had all three of these disorders were more than eight times as likely to die early than individuals without ADHD or any of these coexisting disorders. The study authors claim that their findings emphasize the importance of diagnosing ADHD early 
especially in girls and women, and treating any coexisting antisocial and substance abuse disorders. It is, however, important to emphasize that although the relative risk of premature death is increased in ADHD, the absolute risk is low. Now, writing in a linked comment, Dr. Stephen Faraon, Professor of Psychiatry and Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Research at the State University of New York, Upstate Medical University in New York, a leading United States ADHD expert, says, For too long, the validity of ADHD as a medical disorder has been challenged. Policymakers should take heed of these data and allocate a fair share of health care and research resources to people with ADHD. For clinicians, early identification and treatment should become the rule rather than the exception. But he cautions, although talk of premature death will worry parents and patients, they can seek solace in the knowledge that the absolute risk for premature death is low and that this and other risks can be greatly reduced with evidence-based treatments for the disorder. Well, this is very sobering and disturbing indeed, but the article about the research doesn't go into detail about exactly what is the reason that patients with ADHD are so much more likely to die prematurely. Is it the distractedness? They get distracted, they miss hazards, they die of accidents. Is it the impulsivity? Is it the known tendency to be a thrill-seeking junkie uh, that exposes these patients to uh, increased risks? Perhaps it's some combination of all three. And then also, why is it that the females are more likely to die prematurely with males? After all, uh, females have less tendency to have the hyperactivity impulsivity than males. And also, why uh, the older the uh, diagnosis is made, greater the risks. Hopefully, these are things that will be articulated more clearly with further research. But it does emphasize the need for early diagnosis and treatment to avoid these adverse outcomes. And that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.